Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police, who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation, were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. Police said they found a high-powered hunting rifle about a block from the hotel, but it was not immediately identified as the murder weapon. Mayor Henry Loeb has reinstated the dusk-to-dawn curfew he imposed on the city last week when a march led by Dr. King erupted in violence. Governor Buford Ellington has called out 4,000 National Guardsmen. And police report that the murder has touched off sporadic acts of violence in a Negro section of the city. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. I pray that his family can find comfort in the memory of all he tried to do for the land he loved so well. I have just uh, conveyed the sympathy of Ms. Johnson, myself, to his widow, Mrs. King. I know that every American of goodwill joins me in mourning the death of this outstanding leader and in praying for peace and understanding throughout this land. That was CBS anchor Walter Cronkite announcing the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968. In the aftermath of the assassination, the country mourned the loss of this civil rights leader. There were riots and demonstrations, not just in the U.S., but globally as well. This opening archival clip also includes remarks from President Lyndon Johnson, who offered condolences to the King family and encouraged the country to come together in peace. In another clip that's paired with the opening clip that we just played, Mr. Peniel Joseph of the University of Texas at Austin states that Dr. King's funeral was seen by over 100 million Americans, and every major presidential candidate for the 1968 presidential election, from Bobby Kennedy to Richard Nixon, were in attendance. 125 American cities erupted in protest, and sympathy demonstrations occurred in Europe, Africa, and Latin America. I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues Craig and Pam. With Dr. King's birthday January 15th, and with a nationwide celebration of his birthday occurring the following Monday, as we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, our team will explore Dr. King's life and legacy through the civil rights movement to the present day and offer suggestions and resources to help you teach about the American icon in your classroom. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us as we share C-SPAN resources that can be used in your classrooms as you recognize Martin Luther King Jr. Day with your students. In 1983, following several years of petitioning, President Reagan signed the federal holiday into law, and we observe the holiday on the third Monday of January each year. 
Dr. King's actual birthday was on January 15th, 1929. And before we dive into some of the key moments in his life, let's take a brief look at his youth and background as Anne Schumard, uh, Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery curator, discusses in this clip. He was originally named Michael Luther King, but his father later changed his own name and that of his son, and at the age of five, he became Martin Luther King Jr., no longer Michael. He was a precocious child. He graduated from high school at the age of 15 and then went to Morehouse College in Atlanta. He was ready then to go on to the Crozier Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania. He distinguished himself there as well, graduated at the top of his class, and from there moved on to Boston University to pursue his doctoral studies. While he was in Boston, he met uh, a young Alabama native, Coretta Scott, who was studying voice at the New England Conservatory of Music. Uh, the two married, even though King's father had hoped that he would choose an Atlantan as his bride, the family uh, readily accepted Coretta, and they were uh, married in 1953. As King continued his doctoral studies, he was nearing the end of his, uh, of his formal study and was looking for uh, possible employment opportunities, either in academia or perhaps uh, as a pastor in a church. He was invited to deliver trial sermons at several parishes, and in Montgomery, Alabama, he delivered a sermon for the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He was greeted with a, a great response and was invited then to assume the pastorship of that church. He and Coretta debated. Uh, they weren't really sure that they wanted to settle in the South, but they came to the conclusion that that really was the best place for them to be. And so um, at the young age of, of just 25, um, Martin Luther King took up that pastorship of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. As we consider just a few of many key moments in Dr. King's life, let's jump ahead to 1955 and what was occurring in Montgomery, Alabama. Last month, we recognized the anniversary of the arrest of Rosa Parks on December 1st, 1955, for her refusal to give up her seat on a bus. And while there had been previous attempts and arrests with bus boycotts, this event really set the course for the Montgomery bus boycott that spanned over a year. In the days following the arrest of Rosa Parks, the Montgomery Improvement Association, or the MIA, was formed as a grassroots movement created to oversee the Montgomery bus boycott, and Dr. King was selected to be its leader. Dr. King prepared his remarks for the December 5th meeting of protesters at Holt Street Baptist Church, and it was decided that the one-day bus boycott would be extended. Let's take a listen to a portion of a bell ringer we have in which Ricky Brown leads us through the exhibit at the Rosa Parks Museum in Troy University and talks about the reasons for the bus boycotts during this time. Now here we have a list of the demands that the protesters were asking for. As you can see, uh, the first demand was that the riders be treated with respect and courtesy. Now this was important because a lot of times they were asked to get on the front of the bus, pay their fare, and then asked to get off of the bus and go around to the back doors to ride. Well, some of those drivers would even pull off, uh, even though they had paid their fare, and they had, that person had to wait on another bus, pay another fare, and then just hope and pray that the next driver didn't do the same thing. So they asked for respect and courtesy first. The second demand was first come, first serve seating. But they stated that they were only asking that the whites still load from the front to the back and the blacks still load from the back to the front. But once they sat down, 
they were not asked to get out of their seats for any reason. Now, the third demand simply asked that the company eventually hire black drivers, but not for all the routes, only the routes that came through the black neighborhoods. So as you can see, they didn't ask for total integration, but basically a little more reasonable segregation. But even still, they were not able to reach an agreement with the city. Now, Mayor William A. Gale was the mayor at this time, and he was negotiating on behalf of the city um, and he was negotiating against Dr. Martin Luther King, who was the spokesperson for the MIA organization at this point. Even though they wasn't asking for total integration, the city felt that they were, that if they gave them an inch, they would take, uh, take a mile, and that they were only asking for so little to get their foot in the door to desegregate the buses totally. So after just a very short time, a little over a month, they ended negotiations. He goes on to discuss a phone call that Dr. King received on January 27, 1956, threatening his life and indicating his home would be bombed if he did not stop the bus boycott and leave Montgomery. This prompted Dr. King to reflect in prayer for strength and guidance. And three days later, their home was bombed, but nobody was hurt. Here's Ricky Brown discussing the response to this event. One was ever found for the bombing of the King's home. Now, a large crowd, as you see here, had gathered in his yard when he got home that evening. This was a group of about 300 angry protesters who was there seeking revenge. They wanted to fight back for Dr. King and fight fire with fire. But Dr. King, knowing that that, that would be a mistake, stepped out on his front porch and decided to plead for peace. He told all of them to go home and put away their weapons. He reminded them that even if they receive violence, they would not return it no matter what. And he also told them that even if he was stopped, that the movement would not be stopped because what they were doing was right and that God was with them. So at this point, the focus shifted. Instead of running Dr. King out of town alone, it was then attempted to run 88 more people out of town with him by indicting all 89 of them on an anti-boycott law. A lawsuit emerged from these events that eventually made its way to the Supreme Court. The Browder v. Gale decision confirmed the district court's decision that the bus segregation laws were unconstitutional, and in December of that year, Dr. King was among the first to ride on the integrated bus system in Montgomery. In 1957, Dr. King expanded his role in the fight for civil rights and collaborated with individuals in the movement as he led the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta. Uh, where he was a co-pastor at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. The 1960s saw nonviolent student activism in the civil rights movement with sit-ins, the first one being held on February 1st with uh, four black students from North Carolina A&T College sitting in at a Woolworth lunch counter in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina that was reserved for white customers only. When those students were asked to leave, they refused. So this event launched similar sit-ins in other states, including Alabama, where the civil rights cause was gaining momentum, in April of 1963, uh, sit-ins at various locations throughout the city of Birmingham took place, and marches were held in support of desegregation, where uh, Dr. King took part in these peaceful demonstrations. In this clip from a lesson plan we have titled Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Letter from Birmingham Jail, Samford University professor Jonathan Bass provides context for what was happening in Birmingham at the time. Uh, we're in the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute in front of a replica of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's jail cell. 
what Dr. King is hoping to do, as he says, is he wants to shed the light of truth on the injustices of segregation in Birmingham. So what he needs is national media coverage to show those injustices, which of course were, were uh, rampant throughout Birmingham. Uh, it, it just in, innate to, to segregation in, in Birmingham. And uh, so early on, uh, the, the, the campaign doesn't attract a lot of interest. It's, it, it's, it's criticized. He does, uh, Dr. King doesn't have a lot of volunteers. Uh, some of the early sit-ins uh, that, they, uh, th that uh, some of the volunteers go on, you see one or two people sitting at a lunch counter that are arrested. A uh, judge in Birmingham uh, issues an injunction which prohibits uh, any marches in the streets of Birmingham without a parade permit. Uh, King and, and the SELC, they're not going to get a parade permit from uh, the outgoing administration in, in Bull Connor. And, uh, and so he decides on Good Friday, 1963, in a very symbolic way, uh, was, this was very intentional, uh, that they were, he was going to uh, disobey this court injunction. And, uh, and, and just like Christ had picked up his cross on Good Friday and marched through the streets, uh, Dr. King and the volunteers that came with him, uh, they decided they were going to mar uh, march through the streets of, of, of Birmingham. The marchers, about 50 of them, uh, gathered at uh, 6th Avenue Zion Hill Baptist Church. It was a very small church. It was just packed out that day with, uh, with people that were w awaiting in, in anxious anticipation for Dr. King, uh, Ralph Abernathy, and Fred Shuttlesworth to show up and begin to lead this Good Friday march. They, uh, they begin the march. They come down 6th Avenue uh, north. They pass right in front of the 16th Street Baptist Church, and uh, but they only march for about two and a half blocks. And uh, finally, they uh, Birmingham police kind of uh, run a motorcycle up on the sidewalk in front of them, and uh, they arrest King and Abernathy, and they take them uh, across town over to Southside, which is where the Birmingham jail was located. According to the King Institute at Stanford University, the letter sought to explain the value of a nonviolent campaign and its, quote, four basic steps were the collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. He went on to explain that the purpose of direct action was to create a crisis situation out of which negotiation could emerge. For an activity, students can analyze Dr. King's letter as a primary source, like a DBQ. A lesson has clips that talk about the issue of moderates in the letter, as well as complacency and poetry, so they can be jigsawed for students to view and share as part of a larger discussion. Check out the podcast page for all of the resources that we're discussing in today's podcast, including the text of the letter, the lesson, and uh, the clips that are included too. Yeah, and as you mentioned, Craig, uh, Dr. King believed that the purpose of direct action was to create opportunities for negotiation. Most of our listeners have probably heard Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, that was given at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28, 1963. A speech was given in front of a crowd of 250,000 people right here in Washington, D.C. on the National Mall. But let's hear a portion of an earlier version of this speech, given by Dr. King just a few months prior in Detroit, Michigan. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children, that my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within, but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this
this afternoon and one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them and they will be able to get a job. I have a dream this afternoon that the brotherhood of man will become a reality in this day with this faith. I will go out and carve a tunnel of hope through the mountain of despair with this faith. I will go out with you and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. With this faith, we will be able to achieve this new day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing with the Negroes in the spiritual of all, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty. This speech clip can be used to introduce the concept of redlining. As Dr. King references the goal of African Americans being able to purchase a home on an equal footing. Students could also compare the language from this speech to the arguably more famous version two months later to explore the writing and revision process used by Dr. King. Regardless of these two considerations, both speeches serve as as foundational hallmarks for students as they learn about and analyze the goals and accomplishments of the civil rights movement. I spent the last seven years as a teacher in South Carolina, and we would always take our eighth graders on a trip to a little sea island just a few miles from the coastal community of Beaufort. On this island is the Penn Center, the site of the former Penn School, which was one of the country's first schools for formerly enslaved individuals. And while the school ceased operations in 1948, the site held numerous conferences and retreats for civil rights leaders, including Dr. King, who wrote portions of his I Have a Dream speech in a cabin that is still standing on the property. And on a slightly more personal note, Dr. King's speaking location is marked today with a plaque on the floor in front of the Lincoln Memorial. To stand on that spot and look out over the National Mall, there are just no words. So voices were being heard, and the year following that speech, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, which prevented discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It was a step in the right direction, but the struggle continued. So we continue the march through Dr. King's life and stop in the city of Selma, Alabama, where on March 7, 1965, several hundred protesters gathered to march for voting rights as part of the broader civil rights movement. Now, this was motivated in part by the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was killed in Marion, Alabama, during a nighttime peaceful march in that city in February 1965. We have a resource on that topic that we will list on our website along with the other resources we have on Dr. King. But now, let's listen to a clip from our Selma, Alabama and Bloody Sunday lesson plan that features former Georgia Representative John Lewis speaking at the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the 50th anniversary of the march that became known as Bloody Sunday. On March 7, 1965, a few innocent children of God Some carrying only a bedroll, a few clutching a simple bag, a plain purse or backpack, were inspired to walk 50 dangerous miles from Selma to Montgomery to demonstrate the need for voting rights in the state of Alabama. On that day, 
on that day. 600 people marched into history, walking two by two down the sidewalk, not interfering with the free floor trade and commerce, not interfering with traffic. With a kind of military discipline, we were so peaceful, so quiet, no one saying a word. We were beaten, tear gas. Some of us was left bloody right here on this bridge. 17 of us were hospitalized that day. But we never became bitter or hostile. We kept believing that the truth we stood for would have the final say. A significant point from that day is that the media was present, and it provided a window into what unfolded. From local press cameras to national news coverage, the whole country could see for themselves what occurred. Following that day, Dr. King called for clergy members across the country to go to Selma and march. An injunction had been put in place to keep this from happening, so he and supporters found a workaround. On March 9th, they marched on the bridge and were met by law enforcement on the other side. The protesters, led by Dr. King, stopped and knelt in prayer and then did a turnaround. This became known as Turnaround Tuesday, not just for that action, but also because attitudes started to change toward voting rights. But the fight didn't stop there. In this next clip, we'll hear National Park Service guide April Baldwin explain what unfolded in the days following, in addition to Dr. King's remarks. Frank Johnson, the federal district court judge, actually began hearings on March the 11th. So he heard from many civil rights leaders. He heard from Hosea Williams, John Lewis, Miss Amelia Boynton Robinson, um, others who were involved with the movement, and from the opposition, Jim Clark, the governor, Governor Wallace, and others who were not fond of the march and thought that it would disrupt public safety. And after this, he issued his decision pretty much saying that this march would be necessary in order for, in order for African-Americans to actually attain the right to vote, that there had been such an injustice done to these folks, especially here in the city of Selma, by those issuing the injunction, that a march of this scale seemed to be appropriate. That ruling was actually issued on March the 17th. So these folks only had four days to get everything together in order to make the entire trek from Selma to Montgomery. So beginning on March 21st, more than 3,200 people gathered right at Brown Chapel AME Church to begin the march all the way from Selma to Montgomery. So they came down, they took the Bloody Sunday route, they came down Sylvan Street, turned right on Alabama Avenue, progressed up Broad Street and across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, this time with no sea of blue, and continued to march for five days and four nights, staying at different campsites, um, which were typically black farms in Dallas County, Lowndes County, and a Catholic complex in Montgomery County for four nights and continued to march all the way until they got to the Alabama State Capitol on March the 25th of 1965. 
We are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. A few months later, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed, ensuring that African Americans would be granted the right to vote. And this march was the direct cause for African Americans having their right to vote ensured by the federal government. So this march and this demonstration have been the realization of the desire of African Americans to have the right to vote for over 100 years since the end of Reconstruction. So as uh, National Park Service Guide April Bourbon just stated, the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965 ensured that African Americans had the right to vote. But in the years that followed, tumultuous racial division continued throughout the country, including in Memphis, Tennessee. On February 1st, 1968, two sanitation workers, Echo Cole and Robert Walker, were accidentally killed by the compactor in their malfunctioning garbage truck. This led to a strike of approximately 1,300 sanitation workers on February 12th, who were asking for better wages and work conditions, among other considerations. As the strike continued, Dr. King returned to Memphis on April 3rd, 1968, to join the cause and checked into the Lorraine Motel. Let's listen to National Civil Rights Museum historian Ryan Jones talk about what happened during Dr. King's stay. Dr. King and the Reverend Ralph Abernathy check into room 306. He meets with clergymen in the city of Memphis. He was also going to meet with lawyers. He was facing an injunction to have a successful march the following week on Monday, April the 8th. So he met with his lawyers as well here at the Lorraine Motel in room 306. But Dr. King on that day, he's feeling very emotionally drained. He's suffering from flu-like symptoms. He's suffering from laryngitis. Uh, It was one of the lowest points of his life. Later that day, Memphis uh, has tornado warnings in the greater Memphis area. There was a scheduled rally that night at the nearby Mason Temple, and he doesn't think that there's going to be a large turnout because of the inclement weather. So he sends Reverend Abernathy, Ambassador Andrew Young, and a young Reverend Jesse Jackson to speak for him in his place. Reverend Jesse Jackson, Andy Young, and Reverend Abernathy arrive at the Mason Temple, and they see over 2,000 people have come in the weather, and they're all applauding, thinking that Dr. King is right behind them. And once they realize this, this was Dr. King's crowd, Reverend Abernathy calls from the Mason Temple. He calls Dr. King here at the Lorraine, and he urges and encourages him to come and greet the guests that have come in the weather to hear him speak. Once Dr. King arrives about 30 minutes later, he says something on this night that he hadn't said in any of his other profound speeches in the past 12 years during his duration as a leader in this movement. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. What we didn't know is that this time that this would be the last public address that Dr. King would make. Just 24 hours later, he'd be assassinated by a bullet. Dr. King was fatally shot at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, at 6.01 p.m. on April 4, 1968, dying just over an hour later at a nearby hospital. 
He was 39 years old. In the aftermath of the assassination, riots erupted in over 100 American cities, dubbed the Holy Week Uprising, as folks grappled with what the murder meant. The Atlantic says that in the week following the shooting in Memphis, quote, hundreds of buildings were burned, thousands of arrests were made, and more than 40 people lost their lives. Four days after the murder, Dr. King's widow, Coretta Scott King, and the couple's four children led a crowd of 40,000 in a silent march through Memphis, Tennessee, to honor Dr. King and support the cause of the city's black sanitation workers. When discussing her motivation to do so, Ms. King said, quote, I asked the question, how many men must die before we can really have a free and true and peaceful society? One day later, Dr. King's casket proceeded down the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, in front of 100,000 onlookers as it made its way three and a half miles from Ebenezer Baptist Church to Morehouse College and finally to Southview Cemetery. In our On This Day resource covering the assassination of Dr. King, of which we played a clip to open this episode, students can hear from other voices in response to the event, including those of Cleveland, Ohio Mayor Carl Stokes. They can view live footage of riots in Washington, D.C., and they can view footage of the funeral. I'd be remiss if I didn't also loop back to what you mentioned earlier, Craig, that on April 16th, the cause that had consumed the final days of King's life realized its goal, as the city of Memphis agreed to improved wages and the recognition of the Sanitation Workers Union. Soon after his death, a push to establish a national holiday to recognize Martin Luther King Jr. began. It was an uphill battle to garner signatures and support for a bill to present to Congress. But finally, on November 2nd, 1983, President Ronald Reagan signed legislation that designated the third Monday in January as an annual federal holiday, with the first celebration taking place on January 20th, 1986. In this next clip, President Reagan addressed students at a school here in Washington, D.C. Martin Luther King Jr. was right to insist that the civil rights movement be nonviolent, and he was brave. Your teachers won't approve of my using the word I'm going to use now, but I have to. It's the best word for it. It takes a lot of guts not to hit back when someone is hitting you. And he had that kind of guts. He was a great man who wrested justice from the heart of a great country. And he succeeded because that great country had a heart to be seized. Martin Luther King Jr. really helped make our nation freer. It's not a perfect place. We still have a long way to go. There's unfinished business, and we can't rest until all prejudice is gone forever. The president told the students the nation is different and better because of Dr. Martin Luther King. Our country is different because Martin Luther King Jr. made it better by the way he lived his life. And that's why Dr. King's birthday is now a national holiday for everyone in the country because his contributions benefited all Americans. So while President Reagan signed the bill in 1983, some states did not recognize the holiday until the early 2000s. On August 22, 2011, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial opened on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. For our final clip, here is Secretary of the Department of the Interior, Deb Harlan, discussing the symbolism of the purposefully unfinished monument. There's actually a federal law that guides the process for adding new memorials to the National Park System, including those here at the National Mall. 
Believe it or not, there's a 24-step process to go through from the original concept to dedication of a new memorial, and it involves Congress, the Department of the Interior, the National Park Service, and other government organizations. The design of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial was inspired by the line in Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, where he said, with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. The memorial depicts a 30-foot high sculpture of Dr. King, a literal and figurative stone of hope, standing forward of two other pieces of granite that symbolize the mountain of despair. The sculpture of Dr. King is unfinished, much like the history of civil rights in this country. This week's episode explored the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We hope that you check out all of the resources that C-SPAN Classroom offers to help you teach about Dr. King in your classroom. From archival news footage to eyewitness reflections to contemporary discussion, we know that your classroom can benefit and you'll find all the resources that we highlighted in this episode and more on our featured resources page at www.cspan.org classroom. And if you would ever like to connect with our team to learn more about what we have to offer to teachers and students, please email us anytime at educate at c-span.org. And that's it for this week. Please remember to like and follow our podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss our next episode. Until then, thanks for joining us.